Good morning. Is Kaylee Burrell in here? Is she? Burrell. I was told it was Burrell. Uh, Kaylee, I saw your Instagram video, your strong left foot for the game winner. That was totally fire. Well done. Um, Uh, welcome this morning, and a special welcome to our alumni. Uh, I'm so grateful that you're here with us, and that we get to worship like this. Um, it's been a year and a half since we've gotten to do this, and this semester uh, with a full chapel has been um, nothing short of, of just amazing. Um, I was going to say miraculous, and in some ways perhaps it is, um, but it's been really beautiful. I'm so grateful that we get to be a part of that, and that you get to be a part of that uh, with us. Um, as uh, alumni have come to join us on campus, we are reminded at the college uh, that there is a long story that we are a part of, a long story of God's goodness and mercy and faithfulness to the college. And that story extends back and it also extends forward to our students now that are here, our students that have gone and are doing faithful work in God's kingdom and the students that will come. So as I was looking at, uh, at text this morning, I kind of wanted to capture um, that idea, uh, to kind of sit in this um, place uh, of a long story that we are a part of. And one of the uh, perhaps less appreciated ways that that's communicated is through genealogies in the scripture. Genealogies are, are stories, and they're stories that are told very intentionally and deliberately, specifically the one we're going to look at this morning, that tells us a story, places us within that story, um, and then tells us a great deal about the storyteller. Um, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus this morning in Matthew chapter 1, and it really is a fairly unique genealogy. Matthew crafted it in very intentional and specific ways to communicate certain things to us about God and about his kingdom and about how we fit into it. Um, as we jump in, I recognize that uh, a genealogy, it can be kind of hard to see the story because of the structure in which it is created. Um, but I want to give you two uh, short, small insights that will help as we walk through it. Um, the first is the genealogy is crafted into three sections of 14 generations. So three different chapters, if you will, of 14 different generations that lead to the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And then this word, uh, genao, uh, the father of, is not meant to be literal. It's actually talking about ancestors of. So Matthew, as he puts this together, uh, puts it together in such a way that um, we have very specific people that we're dealing with in the story, and it tells a very specific story. So let's pray, and we'll jump into the text. Father, um, thank you, Lord, for your goodness, uh, for your mercy, and thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your living and holy word. Um, please, uh, be with us now by the power of your spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. So I am not going to do what would probably be torturous and laborious for everyone and read the entire uh, genealogy. Instead, we'll kind of work through it and read bits and chunks. Um, the first of these 14 generations uh, reaches from Abraham to David. The story is about the rise of Israel, about the formation of God's people. Um, the people that God called his own son, that he raised up that they might be his possession and he might be theirs, their living God, their faithful God. And it stretches from the patriarchs all the way into Egyptian captivity and then to the exodus and the movement into the promised land. 
And it starts in verse 1 and it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it begins as you would expect. It starts with glory of Israel, David and Abraham. David, who established the kingly line of the Messiah, to whom God said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Abraham, the father of our faith. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward, says the Lord. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. It was Abraham that God covenanted with and promised descendants that would cover and bless the earth. And it was through David's royal line that the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior, was to come. So with that tone set, the first 14 generations are going to tell the story of God's people from Abraham to David. And we start with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. It begins with Abraham stretches into his family, into Judah and his brothers. The beginning of the Messiah's genealogy is literally the foundation of the nations of Israel, of the 12 tribes, and the focus is on Judah because it's out of Judah's line that the royal tribe would form and that the line of David would emerge. Now listen closely to the next few names that come up. Judah, Perez, Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Jesse. So as we move on from Jacob's sons, we meet these twins, Perez and Zerah, and their mother, Tamar. Now remember that name, Tamar. Then a number of minor characters we know almost nothing about, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, and Salmon. But that brings us to Boaz, the son of Rahab. Remember that name as well. We know he's the kinsman redeemer of the faithful Ruth. Again, another name I want you to hold on to, who married and loved her. And then we come to Jesse, the father of King David. And we might be tempted to think that because David in this first 14 generations is set up, he's the last one, and we think of him as perhaps the pinnacle of where we're supposed to focus and what we're supposed to see. Remember that Matthew is doing some very intentional and specific things here. Genealogies tended to be all male. So for women to feature so prominently was both intentional and very surprising, especially so because of the women that are named. You held on to those names, right? They are not patriarchal wives like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, but they are three Gentile women two of them with morally questionable backgrounds. The first, Tamar. Tamar was a Gentile Canaanite. She was left childless when her two husbands died. And her two husbands were, Judah, were Judah's sons. And when she goes to Judah so that he might provide a third son as a husband, Judah refuses. So Tamar dresses like a prostitute. T Judah ends up sleeping with her. She becomes pregnant. And when when Judah chastises her for being pregnant uh, out of wedlock, she reveals what has happened and that he's actually the father, showing herself to be more faithful to God's law than Judah is. And then we have Rahab, another, another Gentile outsider. She too is a Canaanite, this time an actual prostitute, whose help allows the Israelites to both escape and to conquer Jericho. 
And then we have Ruth, another outsider, a Moabitess, whose line was originally descended from a line of incest. But it was her godliness that attracts Boaz, whom she marries, and they have a son whose name is Obed, who's the grandfather of King David. All of this, God's promise to Abraham that all the people on earth will be blessed by you is beginning to take shape already. We're beginning to see God's heart for the sick from all over the world, his longing for the oppressed, for the outcast, for those who are without hope. Three Gentile outsider Canaanite Moabitess women that are there prominently in the line of the Messiah. So the first 14 generations ends with the rise of the nation of Israel and King David. We're told whose throne is going to exist and prosper through all generations. A promise which makes the trajectory of this next section uh, of generations kind of unexpected. This next section runs from David to Jeconiah. It follows the kings of Israel. Now here are these names. Some of them will stand out, some of them may not. But David, Solomon, and again Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amon, Josiah, Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now the second set of the generations begins with the inclusion of another woman. We know her, Bathsheba, but she was the mother, she had been, um, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and that is Solomon. Hers is a story of betrayal and wickedness that ends in murder, but it comes at the hands of God's servant, King David, who takes his loyal soldier, Uriah's wife, he impregnates her, and then he has him killed. And it signals the devastation that's going to come in the line of David. What follows there that we read is a list of 14 kings, the human kings that the people had so desperately wanted, these human kings that are gonna lead them into idolatry and destruction. Of the 14, two of them were faithful to God, Hezekiah and Josiah. Four of them were a mixed bag, at times obedient, but at times wildly unfaithful to the living God. And then eight of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were idolaters, murderers, power seekers, and two of them, Ahaz and Manasseh, even went so far as to burn their own children in child sacrifice. And as a result of their sin, God judges Israel. Jerusalem is destroyed and his people are taken captive to Babylon. The people of God are subject to a people who worshiped false gods. The arc of the story is not exactly what we would expect. The hope of Abraham and David is replaced by the disobedience of the kings and the destruction of Israel. So while the first section kind of opens our eyes and highlights God's heart for the outcast in the hope of the gospel, this section highlights the sin and the rebellion that's in man's heart that Jesus will come to die for. And that brings us to our third set of generations. The final set of generations sets us on a road to restoration with the return to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple. But again, there are going to be unexpected pieces in the story that lead us to the Messiah. Verse 12 tells us after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. God has heard the cries of his people. He brings them back to Jerusalem from Babylon and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel help rebuild the temple. 
Scripture says that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a, gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. In his mercy, Yahweh has once again rescued his people from captivity, restored them to Jerusalem, and the temple is rebuilt. Then some names follow, and listen to these. Zerubbabel, Abahud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Elihud, Eleazar, Methan, Jacob. Apart from Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, we know little to nothing about any one of them. They are wonderfully, beautifully anonymous. You might as well say Darren Schott, Robert Manicero, Doug Campa, Gerald Nakamura, who were, by the way, guys in my eighth grade uh, breakdancing team. <laughs> True story. We, we were the shadow dancers, and we were fire. Um, but at the end of The Unknowns, we're introduced to a teenage girl and her husband. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Joseph, a descendant of David, placing his son in the kingly line, and Mary. Mary is the final woman in our story, favored by God, talked to by angels, who would give birth to a baby unlike any other. Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So hope comes through a line of unknowns. The final chapter of the Messiah's line shows the humility of the one to come, descended from a line of beautifully unremarkable people just like us. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And it's a story that we hear and see the richness and beauty of, but it's all the while pointing forward to the story that is to come with the coming of the Messiah. We look back and we see the faith of Abraham. It's that faith that grafts us into the genealogy as children of God. We see that David's throne is now occupied by the risen Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father after defeating sin and rebellion on the cross. The temple that was rebuilt by Ashaltiel and Zerubbabel gave way to the one that it foreshadowed, the incarnate Christ who tabernacled in our midst and who made us by the power of the Holy Spirit living temples. The Gentile women, outsiders and sinners, the names of the unknown, they are all us the people that the Messiah came to save. And I want to close with an image, um, with a, a picture, if you will. I know that genealogies can skew towards kind of the official. Um, you look at the structure of them, and, and they may feel almost devoid of, of heart. Um, although they're not, they're so rich in story. Um, but what I wanted to do was come back to the heart of God and the heart of the Messiah. When we look at this text, there are so many different themes and things that we could say and that run through. But I'd like to remind us of this. 
At the beginning of the genealogy, mankind lived under the yoke of sin and rebellion, literally slaves to self. In the middle and the end of the genealogy, the Israelites are under the yoke of the law, the law that demonstrated their need for a savior. So when Jesus comes, Emmanuel, God with us, he addresses those yokes so that we might have life abundant in him. We've looked at this passage a couple of times over the last few weeks. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I want to share the image that I have when I think of this passage. Um, sometimes when we talk about a yoke, we talk about replacing our yoke with the yoke of Christ. And if you picture an oxen's yoke, it sits around your neck and it holds you down. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I think this is a, a theologically sound vision of what's happening. God says to us, come to me and take my hand. And when we come and reach out and he takes our hand, it's not that this yoke that we have is replaced with another yoke of equal vision or light. Instead, the yoke that we were carrying of sin and death and rebellion disintegrates away. And the Father holds us with his holy and divine hand. Our yoke is being yoked to him as adopted children who promises to walk with us in the midst of all things, to never forsake us or leave us. But when we look at the genealogy, we have to be reminded that it is all from the very beginning a story of God's faithfulness at all times, in all things, in the midst of joy and in the face of the deepest sin and rebellion. So in his invitation to come and take my hand, it is not our grip on his hand that is the most important. It is the fact that the living God grasps our hand. Joe Novenson does this illustration where he says, where he says, you look at your relationship with the Father and it's like this. The Father grabs you and he's got you. And you may at time, you may do this, you may do this, but the Father never ever lets go. That's the picture that I want to leave you with. Come, take my hand. Let your yoke of sin and rebellion fall away because you are my child. But know that it is my hand is the one that is holding fast. He is the one who will not let go. He is the faithful one. He is our Father. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, your faithfulness knows no bounds. In the midst of our sin and our rebellion, as we look at your faithfulness through all of history, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus, that we have uh, been set free from our sin, that he paid the price on the cross that we could never pay, that he made us righteous by virtue of his righteousness. Father, be with us this morning, we pray. Please bless this weekend and draw us close to you. We ask in the powerful name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Uh, I think it is fair to say that our students really are the heartbeat of Covenant College. Right? Yeah. Um, and that does include our past students, our alumni that the college has been blessed to, 
to educate, to care for, to live with, to walk with. And today we have the privilege of presenting the first annual Iron Thistle Award. It's a special opportunity to acknowledge two of the thousands of faithful alumni that God has used to impact his kingdom and world as faithful stewards and lovers of Jesus. So please give President Howerson a warm Scots welcome as he comes to present the award. Good morning. Good morning, Covenant College. I am delighted to have the privilege uh, to present uh, this year's Iron Thistle Award to Lewis and Elsbeth Coddington. Let me tell you guys a little bit about the Coddingtons. Not only are Lewis and Elspeth proud Scots, but all nine of their children also graduated from Covenant College. I know that some of you know Davey, the youngest who graduated this past May on Elspeth's 65th birthday. Good birthday present. Uh, two of Elspeth's siblings also attended Covenant. Her father, Dr. Wim Schaefer, deeply enjoyed teaching upper-level mathematics at the college in the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, born in South Korea to a missionary family, Lewis has always had a passion for sharing the gospel and building relationships across cultures. Although Elspeth's childhood was vastly different from Lewis's, she also deeply desired uh, to serve God with her life. Now, the two met as sophomores here at Covenant in the fall of 1975, and they got married in December of 1978. In 1989, they watched as the Berlin Wall fell and Europe and Central Asia were released from the grip of communism. And they both had a strong conviction, uh, a desire to help bring the gospel to that part of the world. And so with help from their church in Knoxville, Tennessee, they joined Christian Literature Centers International in 1990 and Mission to the World, the PCA's mission agency, in 1991. Uh, their missionary journey took them to France and England before moving back to Tennessee in 2005 when Elspeth was diagnosed with serious breast cancer. Uh, Lewis continued to work with CLC International from a stateside base during that time. In 2010, once Elspeth had been treated and healed, God opened the door for them to minister to university students in South China. Then, after reading many books about the plight of North Korea and with Lewis's background of growing up in South Korea, they felt called uh, to this isolated communist country. Unable to actually enter North Korea, they moved to Seoul, South Korea, where more than 32,000 defectors from North Korea live. Uh, they ministered to young North Koreans by teaching English, mentoring, and acting as surrogate parents. Today, they live on Lookout Mountain while Lewis updates the history of CLC, uh, serves on CLC International's leadership team, and Elspeth teaches her students remotely. Uh, friends describe Lewis and Elspeth as loyal, loving, relational, humble, encouraging, wise, sincere, and Christ-centered. They encourage and stay connected with alumni, faculty, and administrators at Covenant College. 
They've also made tuition, room, and board payments to Covenant for the last 21 years. But they're finished with that. Uh, would you please join me in recognizing Lewis and Elsbeth uh, and their service to the kingdom of Christ as we award them with the 2021 Iron Thistle. guys please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for your faithfulness to us, the faithfulness um, that we heard Chaplain Lowe speak of as he spoke about the long line of saints who have gone before us. Um, we're grateful for your faithfulness to and through the Coddingtons. We pray that you would keep them faithful and we pray that you would keep us faithful, that we might go into the world and bear witness and what we think and what we say and what we do to the preeminence of Jesus Christ in all things. We ask it in his name. Amen.